1: Jim Kramer! Welcome to Man Money! Welcome to America! Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. As we head into Friday's incredibly important non-farm payroll report, you have to keep in mind that we have a real Goldilocks problem going here. you think we want to see a great number with powerful job growth, lots of wage increases... That's not how this game works. So in a day where the Dow gained another 54 points, S&P advanced 0.07%, NASDAQ climbed 0.32%, down sharply, by the way, from their intraday highs because of a spike in interest rates, allow me to explain and set the scene for what's really going on here. You see, at this point in the cycle, you have to consider the role of the Federal Reserve in slowing the growth of a smoking-hot economy. If we get an employment number that's sizzling, the Fed will feel compelled to keep raising interest rates. Why? Because their mandate is to stop inflation. And the biggest component of that tends to be wage inflation. And look, that's a real concern. When we hear that Amazon's paying $15 an hour up from what looks like an average of $12, there's a genuine freakout. Among investors, by the way, many of whom quickly dumped almost every single retail stock yesterday, except the one that would seem to be most vulnerable, Walmart, which makes no sense whatsoever. So if we don't want the Fed to slam the brakes on the economy, that means we don't want to see a great employment number. Instead, we need a so-so number, one that's not bad enough to be worrisome, but not good enough to make the Fed feel compelled to tighten more aggressively. What really worries me, though, Is the fundamental ethos behind these rate hikes, does the Fed really need to nip inflation in the bud like this? Would it be so bad if they decide not to take away the metaphorical punch bowl? Let's think this through, okay? Right now, we have a couple sources of inflation in the system. First, there's commodity inflation. When PepsiCo reported yesterday, they talked about commodity inflation, mainly the cost of aluminum cans. But that's entirely because the president slapped a 10% tariff on imported aluminum. It's not organic. The world has plenty of aluminum. It's just that our government put a tax on it. Then there's oil. Global demand for crude is now growing rapidly by about 1.5 percent, up from roughly 1 percent for the past 20 years. At the same time, many countries are producing far less oil than they could. I want you to think about Venezuela, Libya, Mexico. And, of course, there's the reinstituted boycott on Iranian oil. Some of this is organic, but some of it's man-made. The thing about energy inflation is that there's nothing the Fed can do about it. Oil is a worldwide market. We've also had some inflation in lumber. My hope is that the new trade deal with Canada helps that. And by the way, prices have already come down from where they were in the spring. Higher interest, higher short-term interest rates won't lower the price of steel, which also got hit with tariffs. Strangely, though, the price of a key part of the steel commodity, hot rolled, has already peaked. It's coming down. Second, it's clear that some industries have more inflation than others. Housing affordability, well, let's say that's come down heavily, mostly because the Fed has tightened, but also because there's not enough land zone for residential use. Lenoir, the nation's largest home builder, reported this morning. And if you look closely at the numbers, you could easily craft a slowdown story. New orders came in weaker than expected. Same goes for backlog. Gross margins have definitely peaked. The stock dropped a percent and hit its 52-week low on so-called great numbers. Ha! THOSE INDICATORS TELL ME THAT THE FED HAS ALREADY WON against housing. Throw up the white flag, home builders. How about autos? All right, the price of the new cars up again, in part because of higher commodity prices, but I don't think those new prices are sticking. Otherwise, the car dealership stocks wouldn't be such lousy performers. Used cars, on the other hand, are selling well. No tariffs. Plenty of modern features still, much cheaper. I think the auto company should be lowering prices here and getting even more promotional. Again, the Fed has already won this inter- industry, something that's very clear and obvious if you look at the horrendous action in the stocks of Ford or GM. Some traditional bellwethers of inflation are pointing down, too. Liner board prices, boy, that is a basic building block of shipping. They're very weak in this country. Chemical prices, they're all rolling over. Sure signs, that again, that the Fed is winning. So where's the real inflation that the Fed can actually control? Labor. We have nearly full employment in this country, and that translates into higher wages. That's good news for people who work for a living, but it's bad news for the businesses that employ them. Amazon's wage increase really did deck the market yesterday. But when I look at Amazon, I'm seeing a company that's working to control wage inflation by embracing automation in its warehouses and eliminating monthly bonuses and stock grants. I'm not denying that wages are going higher. It's that even this pay raise, Amazon is one of the most powerful Deflationary forces sell, 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 sell. on Earth. I defy you to think of a company that's done more to lower prices and destroy other retailers, forcing remainder merchandise to come down even more than Amazon's prices. Remember last night's piece we did on, off, on the off-price guys, how low their prices are? You know, that's why every other retailer views Amazon as the death star. Now, there are many other pockets of inflation. We keep hearing about trucking inflation, right, because of this shortage of drivers. But you know what? This is, this is another one that people are getting wrong. It has a lot to do with new safety rules put in last year that prevent truck drivers from working too much overtime. In other words, this is another government-mandated dislocation. Ordinarily, we just train up more drivers, right? But young people are understandably averse to going into a profession that could be put out of business by autonomous vehicles. Which brings us to the real source of wage inflation in this country. We're running out of workers. Companies are now employing lots of people who were previously viewed as unemployable. Yesterday we heard kind of remarkable, I don't know if you caught it, Marty Musi, the CEO of Paychex, he said that many companies are now beginning to waive drug testing. I remember when they put that in. Now now they want to keep their employees so bad they're waiving it. Parolees who have been in prison for selling and using marijuana are getting out and finding jobs, especially in states where cannabis is now legal. Listen, my wife, Lisa, is opening a new restaurant in Brooklyn, the Longshoreman, And I can tell you that it's really hard to find dishwashers in New York City for less than $16 an hour. That's well above the minimum wage. Why? A couple of reasons. I think the president's immigration policies have become so restrictive uh, that new people aren't coming into the country. And our birth rates are dramatically lower than the days when I worked as a dishwasher. So literally, we don't have enough people to do all these jobs. Of course, I made about a buck fifty an hour. I was thrilled for it. The margins aren't that great in the restaurant business, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see fewer restaurants opening. It's just not worth it unless the public will pay more for food. You could say it's just a New York problem. We were in San Francisco last week. It's the same. Many of these big cities suffer suffer from similar situations. Labor shortage. Now, the Federal Reserve is very powerful, but it can't create new people. Instead, they raise interest rates, which makes it more expensive to borrow money, meaning fewer people open new businesses and there's more labor to go around. That's how it works. Don't forget, the Wall Street Journal just reported more vacancies are at a seven-year high, which brings me to the real issue here, the crux. There's been almost no wage inflation in this country for decades. Income inequality is a serious problem in this country, and it's a problem that the Fed has absolutely had a hand in creating. How the heck are working people supposed to catch up if our central bank slams on the brakes every time wages incrementally go up? In short, the Fed should be careful what it wishes for. Technology already has put it ton of downward pressure on wages, thanks to the cloud on the cost of goods, thanks to the cost of companies like Amazon. Housing and autos, well under control, I just told you that. So why not let the economy run a little? Would it really be so terrible if we went over the precious 2% inflation target? It just seems crazy to me that the Fed would even think about potentially throwing us in a recession here. And that's what I'm talking about, all to stop wages from finally catching up with where they should be. Here's the bottom line. The Fed needs to consider what it can control and what it can't control. I think it would be a grave mistake for them to be so darn dogmatic about rate hikes, which may prove to be unnecessary here. In other words, a little inflation is not the end of the world, but a recession, that would just be terrible. Darren in North Carolina,
2: Darren! Hey, Jim, thanks for taking my call. Of course. I was I was looking through uh, Canopy's latest quarterly filing and noticed a pretty significant increase in biological assets and inventory on the balance sheet. Okay. Given the uniqueness of cannabis as a crock, such as minimal spoilage and the fact it can be processed into a wide variety of derivative product categories— should we be paying closer attention to 2019 production capacity as a means for factoring valuations of this
1: sector all right this is your obviously really studied this industry Darren okay canopy growth I'm sitting down with Bruce Linton and with uh, and, and, and with by the way they report tomorrow with uh, constellation brands with Bill Newlands and I've got to tell you this is October 13th for teaching I'm conducting in New York and I think they're doing that because October 17th is repeal and they need all the inventory they can get and they see great growth around the world they've got five billion dollars they are the best Tilray announced a convertible bond tonight, but you want to have all the inventory possible if this thing takes off. Remember, these stocks are all going up in anticipation of exactly that repeal. Be careful; they're a little too hot, except for Constellation. John, in New Jersey, John. First, I would like to say it's an honor and a privilege, Mr. Kramer. That's nice. Thank this you. is in reference to Embridge. I know Embridge is buying the rest of their companies. Right. Embridge is also exceeding also exceeded their past quarters and also the stock pays a great dividend. Why hasn't Embridge gone through the roof, Mr. Kramer? This whole group, this whole group, John is from hunger, as my mother would say. You cannot possibly get any pricing because they're not growing. And I've got to tell you, I need people to stay away from the master Limited Partnerships. they have been a disaster, and I'm not going to recommend any of them, not after what's going on. I don't want people to be in this address. Okay. All right, Friday is, unfortunately, incredibly key. This is the most important employment number in ages. I am urging the Fed to approach with caution and stop being so dogmatic and putting out those targets about all the rates they need to have that are increased. That doesn't make sense to me anymore. Man, buddy, tonight, how one company is bringing car buying by click to the critical mass, again, putting downward prices on cars. Don't miss my take on Carvana, not Carvel, Carvana. Then the market hit a new all-time high today, of course, but two stocks aren't getting in on the action. I'm eyeing the weakness in Western Digi, and Micron, symbol new. And with news that hackers have stolen data of almost 50 million Facebook accounts, I'm speaking with the company that signs on the dotted line when it comes to your data in the cloud. Find out how Cyrus One is keeping your information secure and, more important, whether the data center is slowing or not. I say stay with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnBC.com.
0: This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all, every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com slash apps.
1: I'm telling you, there's a new dynamic in the auto industry. New cars, they are out. Sell, sell, sell. Used cars, they're in. Buy, buy, buy. We could spend all night talking about why this is the case. Millennials are cheap. Fewer younger people learn to drive. Who needs a license when you got Uber? How about even scooters? Meanwhile, cars built in the last decade are a lot more reliable than their predecessors. So buying used is much less of a crapshoot these days. And that's why Kramer fave CarMax, the chain of dealerships that mostly sells used vehicles, has seen its stock rally 14% for the year, while new vehicle-focused AutoNation is down nearly 22%. That's why I said at the top of the show that new car prices will continue to be under pressure. But that barely scratches the surface of the story. If you want to see the biggest winner here, look no further than Carvana the online used car dealership. You buy online, and then you go to one of their used car vending machines, basically a gigantic automated garage, to pick it up. Over the past few weeks, the stock has pulled back pretty dramatically from its recent highs. But get this, it's still up more than 500% from where it bottomed a few days after its IPO roughly 18 months ago. And it's giving you a terrific 185% gain just for 2018. Now, back in August, Mitch from Arizona called in to ask about Carvana, and I said, I need to do some catching up on this thing before I render an opinion. At the time, the stock was at $54. Then it surged to $72 at its highs last month, and it's now round-tripped to 54 again. So I figured this is a good time to circle back and look at Carvana. First off, I, well, it's past the uh, mustard. I used to put mayo on it. Gotta eat some crow. In January, not long after Carvana had missed its sales forecast and trimmed its guidance, I told you to wait for the company to prove itself before you do any buying. That's been the way I do things. It's since the way I wrote the book Real Money. That's been my philosophy. And then I just kind of forgot about it. as The stock roared higher and higher. So I missed a major opportunity for you, and that's bad. But what did we do with Carvada right now? Isn't that more important than looking at the past? For starters, this company has a revolutionary concept. While I'm sure many of you would be reluctant to buy a used car off the internet, sight unseen, you know, we got a whole generation of people who literally can't remember a time before the internet. They do everything online, which is why this idea sounds much less out there or outlandish to the under-30 crowd than it does, say, to someone of my uh, octogenarian generation. Buying a car, especially a used car, has always been a painful process, right? I mean, no one really has liked it of my ilk. The house of pain. Oh, just a second. All right, well, not buying anything this show. All right, there's a reason used car salesmen are practically synonymous with misleading high-pressure sales tactics. So Carvana had a brilliant idea. They took their cue from every other kind of retail and decided to cut out the middleman, in this case, the dealerships in order to go directly to the consumer. Instead, the company uses technology to give potential buyers an incredible amount of information on each vehicle via their website. You can go there to research a car or buy it, or even get financing. You never need to interact with another human being. It's like ordering a Domino's pizza. That's a huge selling point for millennials. After you pay, they either drop the car off at your house or they let you pick it up from one of their used car vending machines. Come on, this is great. Let me put it to you like this. When you buy a used car from a dealership, the whole process can take hours. With Carvana, Carvana, I just bought a car, all from the comfort of my office or your couch. Even better, if you don't like your car, you got seven days to return the darn thing. It's like a week-long test drive. Good luck getting that from a traditional dealership. They don't even like it to go around the block. But even though I love the concept, I was very cautious about Carvana when I told you to wait for the company to prove itself 10 months ago. Management's execution had been too inconsistent. Sure enough, two months later, the company reported another disappointing quarter with weak guidance. And the stock sold off dramatically as analyst after analyst downgraded it. Sell, 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 sell. However, by the end of March, Carvana started picking up some sponsorship. A couple of analysts either upgraded or initiated coverage with buy ratings, and the stock started bouncing. Then in April, the company announced an 11 million share secondary offering, which ended up being priced at $27.50. At the same time, though, Carvana also pre-announced better than expected sales, which breathed new life into the stock. (laughs) Then over the summer, this thing just exploded higher on very little news as analysts after analysts kept finding reasons to raise their price targets. And hey, it's not like they they were wrong. When Carvana reported its latest results on August 8th, the company finally gave the bulls the spectacular blowout that they'd been craving. While Carvana delivered a wider-than-expected earnings loss, the sales came in much higher than expected, up 127 percent, 127 percent year-over-year. What? There's a number. They expanded into nine new markets, bringing the total up to 65. It now takes them an average of just 66 days to sell a car. That is down from 105 days the year before. That's the key metric. Even better, the guidance explosive. Carvana predicted a fabulous third quarter. Management raised their full-year guidance. They're now forecasting 115 to 127 percent revenue growth, with total gross profit per car coming in at 2,000 to 2,200, up from a previous forecast of 1,539. That is huge, people. By the end of the year, Carvana expects to be in 79 to 84 markets across the country, at which point they'll be covering 57 percent of the U.S. population. In short, Carvana is not just a disruptor. It's also a classic regional to national growth story, something we love on Mad Money. Now, in response, again, the stock moved higher, and that made perfect sense. Everybody was expecting Carvana's growth to slow, perhaps dramatically, because that's exactly what the company told us would happen when it gave us tepid guidance earlier this year. You know what these guys were doing, right? What? Repeat after me. They were doing UPOD. They under-promised and over-delivered. Exactly what I told the Philadelphia Eagles to do last year during summer camp, and they won the Super Bowl. But then the stock got a little out of control. When Mitch in Arizona asked me about Carvana a week after it reported, it was trading at 54. Then over the course of the next month, step by step, inch by inch, it suddenly climbed to 72 bucks. Wow. This move was simply about a momentum stock attracting new adherents after a great quarter. Since then, though, Carvana's lost nearly 25% of its value. Again, no real news, except that a major shareholder has been selling the stock hand over fist. I don't blame the guy. With such massive gains, it would be irresponsible not to ring some of the register. So now that Carvana's pulled back, what do we do with it? I'm torn. On the one hand, even as it has come down from its highs, the stock is still run a lot. You know I hate to chase. On the other hand, it's not expensive by any stretch of the imagination. Carvana trades is just nearly two times next year's expected sales. Yet the company's growing like wheat. Next year, the analysts are forecasting 80% revenue growth. You know what? I think that Carvana's too attractive to ignore. However, I would only buy Carvana for speculation, as the stocks are real wild traders I just described. You need to be prepared to be building your position gradually on the way down if it keeps falling. The bottom line, Carvana's got a fabulous concept, which, by the way, Mr. Fed Chairman, keeps car prices down and reduces inflation. I think this online used car salesman has absolutely proven itself. I like it. But even after it's near 25% decline from its recent highs, the stock remains hot, hot, hot. So, yes, you have my blessing to buy it here. Just don't be too aggressive, and don't buy it all at one level. I want to go to Michael in North Carolina. Michael. Hey, Jim. Booyah. First-time caller. Thanks so much for having me on the show. That's what I wanted. I got a
2: position position in United Rentals and wondering whether United Rentals' recent acquisition will make up for any revenue shortfall from there being fewer natural disasters requiring United Rentals' equipment for recovery. And the impact of the Canada trade fights. What are your thoughts? Has it back to
1: 190? I, I get discouraged because I keep seeing great numbers and the stock does not go higher. But I am not going to give up. I think that Caterpillar going, remember, they don't buy cat stuff. But Caterpillar uh, just soaring here. And this one's domestic, but people love China. All of a sudden, they love Caterpillar and Boeing. I'm not giving up in URI, but I can't pound the table. All right. New cars out. Used cars in. You might be to buy Carvana. That's me saying bye, bye, bye. But be careful because this stock is very hot. What's for mad money head? I'm mining the two key culprits in the semiconductor space to find out what's behind their underperformance. You keep asking about them. I've got it. Then cloud, big data, machine learning. Wow! I'll spare you the buzzwords. I'm speaking with the CEO of a company behind data center real estate. Understand different ways to play these trends and does a. Well, bear uh, poop in the woods, sure, but it doesn't have to poop all over your portfolio. Boy, there's some real high-end thinking. I'll tell you how the market naysayers can continue to create mischief. So stay with Kramer.
0: This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade.
1: After yet another day where the average is rallied to a new all time high, I want to take a moment to check up on a group that's been sticking up the joint lately. I'm talking about the commodity semiconductor space. Sell, 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 Specifically, there are two chip makers that have been trading so horrifically that they've held down the entire group. I'm talking about Western Digi. Western Digital, and Micron, both makers of relatively undifferentiated memory chips, even as both companies would beg to differ about that characterization. Why do these two stocks matter? Because the semiconductor space is important. Chips are nearly everything these days, and they need to be ordered early in the production process. So a downturn in the semis is often a leading indicator for the broader economy. So are Micron and Western Digital the proverbial canaries in the coal mine? Or maybe there's something else going on here. Let's explore. First, let me give you some background. Western Digital used to be a pure play on hard drives. But then in 2016, the company shelled out $19 billion buying SanDisk, which is the maker of all sorts of commodity chips, especially NAND, N-A-N-D flash chips that are used for data storage. How about Micron? All right, it's got two main lines of businesses, flash and what's known as dynamic random access memory, or DRAMs, which is an essential component of all sorts of electronics, especially computers. Now, when I say Micron and Western Digital are commodity semiconductor companies, what I mean is that there's nothing particularly special about these chips. They're not like NVIDIA or AMD or Intel, where each product is protected by a wall of patents. Theoretically, if you want to get into the flash memory business, all you really need is enough money to build a fab. That's industry speak for a semiconductor factory. That's why flash and DRAMs are t- tend to be boom and bust businesses. When demand for these chips take off, pricing goes through the roof and companies like Western Digital and Micron make fortunes. But eventually, new capacity starts coming online fairly quickly. These things are easy to build, these fabs. Supply of chips increases, prices break down. When you deal in commodities, investors are always worried about an impending boom bust. Sell, 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 sell. So when you see that Western Digital is down more than 45%, 45% from its highs in March, with all-time highs for the market, with this stock at its lowest level since late 2016, while Micron's down more than 30% from its highs in Mays, you know now the reason why. But I'm going to differ here. I think there's a fundamental difference between Micron and Western Digital. We know that the NAND flash market is hideous right now, and that's a huge part of Western Digital's business. But, you know, it's really almost a sideline for Micron. The lion's share of their sales, 70%, comes from DRAMs, and that's a very different market. Now, let me explain. When you look at the breakdown of Western Digital, it makes perfect sense to me. Here's a company that gets roughly half of its sales from Flash. Late last year, a lot of analysts were predicting those chips would come under serious pricing pressure by late 2018 or early 2019. For a while, though, the pricing held up better than they'd expected. However, in March, we started hearing about large increases in NAND flash shipments. Remember, this is a commodity. Markets are all about supply and demand. So more shipments translates into weaker pricing. And that's when Western digital stocks started getting pummeled. (laughs) Lately, all these fears about flash pricing, you know what? They've come true. When Western Digital reported in late July, they confirmed it, with management giving much weaker-than-expected guidance. Stock got hit even harder. And again, Western Digital deserves this decline, especially when you consider that the other half of its business, hard drives, is positively antediluvian. Micron, though? Come on, it's a different story. Sure, they're hurt by falling prices of NAND Flash chips, but much less than Western Digital, as Flash only makes up a quarter of Micron's sales. So what's driving the weakness here with the stock down more than 30% from its highs? While DRAM pricing has held up just fine, investors are betting it will break down just like flash pricing has. They figure it'll follow it. That's why Micron keeps selling off even when the company reported better than expected numbers with decent guidance. People don't believe it can last. Now, the company briefly managed to turn things around in May when it announced a monster $10 billion buyback. This is only a $53 billion company. What a tremendous sign of confidence in the underlying business. The buyback news sent the stock surging. But in the past few months, Micron's given them all all of those gains and then some. And look, when the company reported last month, they did deliver yet another strong top-in-line beat. Yet the quarter also seemed to confirm many of the bear's fears. Myron told about how its clients are making what they termed, and you could hear, you could just hear people, just shake, you know, just, just. Mm. Well, you know what you do when you can't handle something in your stomach, you know, plop plop fizz fizz. They said they're making an inventory adjustment. Do You know that almost 50,000 people watch my video of taking Alka-Seltzer to help my stomach lining, apropos of absolutely nothing. An inventory adjustment means they already have too many chips and they don't need more. That's why management predicted a 300 basis point gross margin decline next quarter, Even, even if that wasn't exactly unexpected. Still, DRAMs, the core business, are still holding up much better than Flash. In fact, DRAM pricing is just fine, which makes me think that negativity here, I think it's overblown. Add in Micron's $10 billion buyback, again, equivalent to roughly 20% of a share count, and the earnings per share here could get a huge boost simply because the company's shrinking the number of shares so dramatically. And that buyback just started kicking in last month. In fact, in this quarter alone, Micron's committed to doing $1.5 billion worth of programmatic repurchases. That could have a huge impact, people. Maybe even similar to what we saw with the stocks of Broadcom and Qualcomm after they instituted their buybacks. Whew, Going forward, I think that could be the real difference between Micron and Western Digital. When Micron stock goes down, the company will be in there buying a hand or a fist with you. When Western Digital stock goes down, it just goes down. Hey, plus, as big-name money manager David Tepper pointed out when he spoke to Scott Wapner on Fast Money Halftime Report last month, Micron's part of a slap-happy oligopoly. they are really only three players in the DRAM space, and so far, they've been pretty disciplined about adding new capacity. Of course, if you bought on Tepper's recommendation, you walk right into that hideous quarter buzzsaw, but the point stands. Oh, and a good fellow here, this VJ Rakesh at Mizzou, he reported out, in Missouri, he reported out on Monday. When he downgraded Western Digital but stayed positive with Micron, see, there is a difference. These are very, very stark businesses. They don't have a lot to do with each other. The analyst had just come back from a tour of these semiconductor plants in Asia, and he sees NAND flash pricing getting substantially worse. But he also says the DRAM producers, like Micron, are showing a lot more discipline, which means that prices aren't going to drop like that. If he's right, if Micron can deliver close to the numbers that management has forecasted, then this stock is absurdly, embarrassingly cheap and must be bought, bought at four and a half times next year's earnings estimates. As I pointed out before, stocks only get that cheap when Wall Street doesn't believe they can make the numbers. In other words, if Micron can just deliver results that are only a bit worse than expected, instead of a lot worse than expected, I think its stock could be able to go much higher, like Qualcomm, like Broadcom. One problem, it might not matter. As long as money managers expect Micron's business to crater, it may not make a difference if the company can report decent numbers. Remember, the stock's been breaking down for months, but it didn't actually disappoint until a few weeks ago. It's just that investors were anticipating this decline. Here's the bottom line of this very subtle thought that I'm giving you, which is Micron's different from Western Digital. These commodity semiconductors, they've been in the house of
2: pain, and I
1: wouldn't touch Western Digital even down here. As for Micron, I think this is the kind of stock that actually gets cheaper on the way down, especially since the company's doing better than you believe, and management's repurchasing a massive number of shares. I'm not saying it can rebound overnight, but I do think Micron is worth buying here. I just can't press the button. (laughs) Jeez, what the hell was that? Patty in New York, Patty. Yes. Hi, Jim.
0: Um, after researching augmented reality and future tech, I bought HiMax in January at nine seventy-five. Yes. I've been holding, uh, thinking of their potential and their patents. They're headquartered in Taiwan. After dropping significantly, do I hang on or do I get rid of it?
1: Man, I'm not a fan. I'm just not a fan of okay. that stock, and I haven't been in a long time. Uh, I can't – oh, my God, it's down 40%. Uh, let, let's – I don't like it. I don't like the Taiwanese market, and I don't like Himax. I'm sorry, Patty. I wish I could say I did, but I don't. All right, the semis are not in chip shape. <laughs> Western Digital's just horrendous. I wouldn't touch that thing with a pimple pole. But Micron may be worth owning here. Watch more, man, money had What rising rates mean for a data center wheat like Cyrus One. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO. Then the Bears, are once again creating all the mischief. <laughs> I'll tell you how to keep your portfolio in check. All your calls, also rapid fire. In tonight's session, Lightning Round, so stay with Kramer. As a rule, many money managers tend to steer clear of the real estate investment trust when interest rates are rising. REITs are dividend stocks, and their payouts become less attractive when bond yields rise dramatically, as we saw today. So, what do you do with a high quality REIT that has a terrific concept? Take Cyrus One, which is a data center real estate investment trust that makes its money operating these huge warehouses full of servers. We know there's a ton of demand for data centers thanks to the rise of the cloud. But on the other hand, Cyrus One sports a 2.9% yield. And that dividend get, gets a lot less attractive when the benchmark 10 year treasury is now at 3.15 and the two year Three-year and five-year yields hit 10-year highs today. Now, this stock managed to put up a nice rally when the bar market was behaving itself. In the last few weeks, though, Cyrus One has pulled back from 68 to 63 and changed, even as the business is doing just fine. So has it been punished enough? Could the company potentially do well enough to outweigh the impact of rising interest rates on its stock price? Let's check in with Gary Wotazic. He's the president and CEO of Cyrus One. find out more about how the company's doing, where it's headed, Mr. Wotazic, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Gary. Hey, good, Thank morning, you so much. You. Have a seat. Okay, so I was on a conference call with your CFO, and she actually said, look, uh, higher rates are not good for us. Sure. Uh, And I want you to describe to people what it really does, because I think there's a lot of people who watch the show who would never understand why a growth business would be affected by higher rates.
2: Well, we're structured as a REIT, and as you point out, it's it's a digital REIT, so we're focused on serving the needs of the cloud companies. Um, but since sixty plus percent of our investors are real estate investors, um, you know we're caught up in that tailwind. So, anytime the yields are going up, our stock gets impacted. You right. saw that now. You saw that earlier in the, in the year. Um, however, you know the secular trends are so strong, and our underlying growth is really, really strong. And that's easily the best way to combat the, the rising interest rates. So maybe they're up fifty, sixty basis right. points. You know our top line growth is over twenty percent. So that's longer term. That'll right. easily uh, offset any any issues. Uh, associated with uh, rising interest rates.
1: All right, so guys, so I speak to a lot of people, and I spoke to a lot of people last week who were in San Francisco, and there was this whisper, and I want to put an end to it. The whisper is that the data center is slowing. I don't know where yep. it comes from, I hear it from here, I hear it from there. You're the guy, no. you would know more than
2: anyone. Is it slowing? Absolutely not. Uh, we have seen, we've come across, you know, ending the first half, you know, having bookings that totaled everything we did in all of last year. So in the really? first six months of this year, we sold everything we did in all of 17. And that was also a really strong year. So from our perspective, it is accelerating. And if you talk to uh, any of the fan companies or even the broader group, mm-hmm. there's about a dozen companies that are really kind of driving this industry. Uh, everyone's capital expenditures are up dramatically. I mean, there was an article in a journal not that long ago. with you know, four or five companies spending over $50, $50 billion in CapEx, right. equivalent to kind of like what real industrial companies are doing. And that's all because of the demand that they're seeing is enormous and they're preparing for all that growth.
1: Okay, so uh, give us some benchmarks to tell people that they shouldn't worry: Length of lease, uh, rising prices of lease. You know, some, sure. some metrics that clearly indicate that right. it really is strong.
2: Yeah, just this last quarter, I mean, you know, we had a $65 million booking quarter, our biggest quarter ever million of bookings in the first half of this year, more than we did all of last year. So really two good indicators. With regard to the number of leases, it was a record number of leases we did, over 500. And the term of the lease was just about 12 years. And if you contrast that to when we IPO'd five years ago, I mean, the average term of our lease was like 26 months. So the length of term is going up, the amount of of deal size is increasing, and... And the the penetration in terms of the number of different locations each individual customer uh, is buying from us has increased. 60 or 70 percent of our businesses with customers in more than one location, and 90 percent of our businesses with repeat customers. So, okay. really, really good indication.
1: All right. So, and someone told me he'll say that. then ask him <laughs> why did he spend in Europe <laughs> if it's not slowing in the yeah.
2: U.S. Well, actually, the way I look at it is, is you're really in an inferior position. You know, this data is global, right? Right. You know, if your kids play Fortnite, they're playing against kids all around the Good world point. so data is flying around around the world our customers which are predominantly fortune 1000 customers are are deployed everywhere globally so if you really want to be helpful to uh, to the customer's needs you have to have a global platform and if you don't you're really in an inferior position and we look at all the success that we've had in the states over the last decade and we feel really comfortable that we'll be able to export that same success internationally because all the growth internationally is coming from all the customers that we serve here so so what we're doing there, and also with the combination of the GDS acquisition, the partnership that we made with the Chinese companies, the cloud companies coming out of China are equally as uh, ambitious. So we're going to do really well once we, uh, once we start All launching. right.
1: There's some short-selling fund is saying this GDS overinflates and stuff. I, I don't know. I mean, but it, they, I know you just can't give me like a sure. one-word answer on that, but it sure doesn't seem like it to me.
2: No. You well, know, I think the best validation of that is market spoke for itself. You know, the guy came out with a short thesis. People had a chance to uh, review what he said. I think the management team did a great job rallying back, and they're basically at the same price they were prior to the short. I it's guess, a great company.
1: All right, that's what I thought. Now, great i got to tell you, maybe what it is is people don't believe it can last, and yet yeah. if they don't think it can last, why would it still be accelerating? I mean, if it didn't last, it would be plateauing.
2: Like it, you know, it, it, what, what the thing that's really kind of – always, uh, you know, bothersome to me is that you have all of these other companies, Amazon putting up a 49% (laughs) quarter, it's a $25 billion company. That's the third sequential quarterly increase of a really large company. Salesforce, Microsoft, Oracle, everyone's putting up big numbers. And there's a disconnect in that while all those companies have done really well and their share prices have, have exploded over that you don't get that same follow-on effect in the data center business, and all we are doing is, you know, we're making these digital factories that power those products. All right. So all of that growth that you see there is ultimately going to manifest itself in our growth in our business.
1: Well, look, I want to thank you for answering what I thought was a specious view, yeah. view but let's we put it to rest. Okay, that's Gary Wotasic. He's president and CEO of Cyrus One. I don't see any slowing. He doesn't see any slowing. Let's just put a nail in that coffin. They have money. It's back after the break. <laughs> It is time to the lightning round We're stop, c- closed, We're climate, s- And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Cover the lightning round, Question So I wanna start with Richard in Florida. Richard! Richard! I guess I need to say
2: a little booyah. But i have up to Bank of America. I just want to see what your future is on Clorox. Stock. Okay, Clorox was down, down five dollars
1: today because interest rates went up. As interest rates keep going up, the stock will go down. It's one for one. That means when it gets to 140, bye-bye bye! Buy. Okay, we're going to Kirk in New York. Kirk. Jim, how are you? I am good, Kirk. How about you?
0: I'm well. I'm just calling to check up on Jimmy's stocks. I need some advice, man.
1: What stock? Uh, Sirius XM. Uh I, Sirius. uh, I have been behind this stock literally for three and a half dollars, and now I am starting to cool. I did not like the Pandora acquisition. That is too ten cent. You got you got Spotify, and now you have XM. No, it's too competitive for me. I'm now saying that's a major change for me. I want to go to John in North Carolina. John. Hey, Jim, big North Carolina boo to you. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you for all the insights and in, uh, helping us navigate the market. Uh, uh, listen to you every day on the ride home from work. Oh, that's uh, great. My question, <laughs> my question tonight is on one of the cloud princes, and uh, the stock is New Relic. No, yeah, I've this stock's ridiculous. It's so. come down. Remember, it's up 54% for the year. But it has come down mightily. And I got to tell you, I'm getting real interested in Lucerne's company. I think the stock in the 80s is a... Buy, buy, buy. Okay, we're not done. We're going to Jack in Ohio. Jack. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Jimmy. Plus, I'm about halfway through your book, Confessions of a Street Addict. Oh, kind of holds up.
2: How can I help? Hey, uh, it's, it's, it's hovering right around 4% yield. And it looks like they're about ready to have another good quarter.
1: ABBV. A, B. I'm worried about ABBV. Why? Because there's a competitive product that's a biosimilar put out by j and J. I I think that it may be time in this spike. and I think ABB spikes to 100 to do a little schnitzel. So, 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 I'm so, getting so. concerned. J&J by the way. I'm telling club members of ActionLensPlus.com that J&J is right here. Let's go to Dave in Nevada. Dave. Yes, Kramer. A big booyah and thank you from Las Vegas. Vegas! I'm I'm here talking about Shot Spotter today. If you have not Yeah, we did a piece on it. And we kind of liked it. You know, it detects gunfire shots. We kind of think it's a pretty good situation. And that, laser, but speculative is the conclusion of the lightning round.
2: The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: Being a bear is so much easier than being a bull. You can create mischief whenever you want. And then if the mischief doesn't produce anything more than toilet paper hanging from the trees, you just move on to the next house. Remember Turkey? A month ago, we started hearing serious rumblings about how President Erdogan, already kind of a wild card, was challenging his central bank's independence. Turkish inflation was running rampant. So the central bank raised interest rates dramatically, which is what they're supposed to do. Now, the thing about Turkey is that it's kind of been a slow-motion train wreck for ages. The iShares MSCI Turkey ETF plunged from $46 in January down to $26 coming into August. So it was hardly news that the sick man of Europe was in trouble. On top of that, Turkey is probably the most politically unstable country in NATO with an increasingly authoritarian president who was nearly removed in a failed military coup a couple of years ago. By the way, you know something's going very wrong when the Turkish army can't even pull off a coup d'etat. It's like their signature move. Why does this matter? Because while the Turkish central bank was tightening, President Trump was trying to secure the release of an American pastor who'd been arrested on disputed charges connected with that failed coup I just mentioned. Suddenly, at the same time that Erdogan was battling his own central bank, the bears started panicking about a crisis caused by President Trump's sanctions on Turkey. On August 8th, this whole scenario, it became the lead story in the Wall Street Journal. The result? Bearish newsletter writers and saturnine pundits and prophets showed up all over the place, warning that the bulls were whistling past the Turkish graveyard, oblivious to the coming contagion out of Turkey. Now, it didn't matter that the Turkish central bank ultimately maintained its independence. It didn't matter that the peripatetic president then moved on to another issue. We were told by these Cassandras that Turkey could bring us all down and that we were just being too cavalier. Over the next week, the Turkey ETF plunged from 26 bucks down to 19 Meanwhile, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, in sympathy with that terrible situation in Turkey, lost 500 points over the same period. As the bears grabbed the microphone in the media echo chamber and refused to let go, I warned you here that it would be a buying opportunity. I was caught up in the 1994 lira collapse. I knew about this. I believed it was severe and assumed it would lead to contagion. I told everyone in '94 that would be the case. But you know what? The worries only led to losses from my hedge fund and others like it and nothing else. So, of course, this latest Turkish crisis turned out to be totally overblown, just like all the other recent crises. Instead of contagion from Turkey, you caught a beautiful bottom in the Turkish stock market uh, ETF rallying back to 23. Fast forward earlier this week. Erdogan again refused to release the pastor. But at the moment, the president's he's got his hands full with this most dramatic Supreme Court nomination, in Living Memory. Once again, our markets are oblivious. Why? Because there was no contagion. In fact, it was indeed the classic buying opportunity. Turkey was the buying opportunity. The Dow Jones has put on more than 1,600 points since the Turkish bottom. All those people try to panic it out because it's what they do for a living. Why do I care so much about this? Why do I bring it up? Because the bears never reckon with the aftermath when they get it wrong. Last week, they moved from warning about a Turkish contagion to warning about an Italian contagion. This time, the culprits a severely unbalanced budget in Italy. Now we're supposed to sell American stocks because of Italy. The Cassandra's are back, unchallenged, admonishing us for being oblivious. Cavalier! In which they've never been held accountable. All the times they're wrong. Meanwhile, the crisis in Turkey is actually deepening. We just got a 25% inflation rate today. But the bears don't care anymore because they moved on to Italy. How do these professional pessimists get away with it time and time again? I think it's because sowing fear is just so easy to do. It's always news when someone says the banks could be in danger, isn't it? Even if someone's been wrong over and over again. Plus, unlike the bulls, no one ever holds your feet to the fire for being too bearish, and you know who I'm talking about. So what's the takeaway? Whenever you see these contagion stories, unless there's some direct connection to the US banks, and there rarely is, you need to treat these pullbacks as buying opportunities. Beware the bears. Their righteous indignation will almost always lead you astray. Turkey, Italy, who knows what's next? No one ever calls them to account for being wrong. They always matter until they don't. And then it's on to the next negative narrative that they can foment. I say we quarantine these guys when they scream contagion. They don't deserve the platform. Unfortunately, Many journalists love controversy, which is why they'll never let these bogus, bearish stories go to waste. The best you can do is prepare yourself so you know what to do the next time someone starts shouting contagion in a crowded theater. Stick with Kramer. managed news in the cloud space after the close. Cloudera and Hortonworks merging, creating a lot of value. i like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer and I will see you tomorrow!